0: Amen, if you have your Bibles, go with me to Ephesians chapter 4, I'm going to be in verse 26 and 27 today, It's 26 and 27 of Ephesians chapter 4, I pray that you uh, were blessed by John last week, Um, that uh, his teaching of the Word was profitable. I know I listened to the sermon on, uh, I tried listening to it on the plane (laughs) on the way back. Uh, That didn't go too well because the internet was so slow. Uh, And then when I got back, listened to it and was incredibly encouraged and challenged. Um, uh, I pray that you were too. I pray that you took heed to those passages, I'm going to actually review just a small portion of that because it sets us up to verse 26 and 27. Um, but I just wanted to say that I'm thankful for John, John's ministry. Make sure you guys are praying for John in Refuge City and kind of going through a little bit of a transition period right now and uh, hoping to uh, for John to not be the lone elder anymore, or the lone pastor, but to, they are hopefully going to be bringing on two other guys uh like raise two guys within the body to become elders alongside of John and uh so um just be praying for that that the body would be wise and that the elders uh, the elder would be wise in doing so and um that's such an important thing uh for them uh and for the kingdom so I want to say that now I want us So we kind of jump into this text this morning. I I want to kind of review a little bit of the overall picture and then kind of draw us into last week a little bit and kind of refresh a couple things from last week that will set us up to go into verse 26 and verse 27. So first of all, kind of a bigger picture here. Paul is walking us through now what it looks like to live in light of the putting off and the putting on. So we talked about how the putting off and the putting on is first an indicative before it's an imperative. So it's first something that is true of us before it is something that we do. And that's important for us to understand. Because if it's just putting off and putting on is just something that we do, then we will end up living legalistically. That we will not live by grace, We will live legalistically, meaning that i got to put off and put on these things and and somehow that makes me right or or somehow, maybe not, most of us are not going to say, well, that would earn our salvation, but at the very least, that that has something to do with earning my standing before God, at least on a daily basis. So we have to be very careful there. And it, it also impacts how we treat each other, whether we do that legalistically or graciously. So we have to first see that putting on and putting off is something first that is true of us, that God did, that he put off the old man for us and has put on this new man and does this in salvation and justification and such. So he's showing us, though, so now if it's first an indicative, it's something that's true of us, then now how do we live in light of that? How do we live in light of putting off and putting on? So now practically what we're talking about here, this putting off and putting on, is is showing us what it looks like to walk in holiness, what it looks like to be on the trajectory toward holiness, to be growing in holiness. And he is doing this in the context of giving us the doctrine of the church. So he's giving us this theology of what is the church, What does it look like to live in unity as the church? And it's in that context that he's talking about our pursuit of holiness. So it's it's very important because most of us view pursuit of holiness as strictly an individual item. Like individually, I pursue holiness because it impacts me, it impacts God. Maybe it impacts my family. But what he's saying here is that our pursuit of holiness as a people, even as individuals, is a part of what impacts the church, the whole church, the unity of, and I think particularly the local church. So sin, this idea of holiness, so the opposite of holiness is sin, right? Sin is wrong on its own, but in this context, it's particularly wrong because it hurts the unity of the church. I don't think, you know, depending on your church background stuff i mean lots of churches talk about being holy being holy being holy we shouldn't sin we shouldn't sin we shouldn't sin but what he's saying here is yes that's true but how does it impact the church listen if you're not putting off the old self so we're talking about living practically in light of the fact that God has put off and put on for us. So if we not practically put off the old self and put on the new self regularly, then you will be breaking fellowship. Like your lack of pursuit of holiness necessarily has a negative impact on fellowship, unity in the body. The only exception to that would be is if, everyone else is doing the exact same thing, right? So if everyone is just indulging in sin, then we can be unified in indulging in sin, and no one has to put off and put on. We can just keep the old self on. But if you have a portion of the people putting off the old self, putting on the new self, then anyone that is not moving in that same direction is going to bring disunity to the body. You will be breaking fellowship. I want you to think about this This, this over this next week as you, as you are choosing whether to spend your time doing X, Y, or Z or spending time renewing and refreshing by studying the Scriptures or spending time in prayer, seeking unity with God and holiness and those kind of things and living a life of repentance and faith versus just indulging in the old self, that what you're doing actively has very real consequences for a group of people called the church. <clears throat> Let me press in a little bit further. If you feel out of fellowship with this body, then it's because someone isn't putting off and putting on. If you feel not unified, then it's because someone isn't putting off and putting on. Let me add this last phrase. And there's a high probability that it's you. Okay? Now, some of you, that just offended. But this is fantastic. It's fantastic. Here's why it's fantastic. Because God in his grace is going to give you the opportunity to work through that anger this morning. With this passage. See, sin breaks fellowship. And holiness promotes fellowship. Sin breaks fellowship, but holiness promotes fellowship. Just an observation that most of the greatest relationships that I observe and experience myself in this church are centered around the gospel and a practical, mutual pursuit of holiness. That because of the gospel at the center of that relationship and then the then fruit of pursuing holiness in that, that those relationships are sweet. They're not perfect. There's still sin there. But there's a sweetness there. And that is what a good gospel, deep fellowship relationship looks like. One that is centered around this mutual pursuit of holiness. Not legalism. And not laziness, but a gospel driven, grace driven pursuit of holiness. And it's built on the grace of the gospel resulting in this pursuit of holiness. Guys, relationships that you have that are built or centered on anything less than the gospel and a pursuit of holiness are nothing more than shallow acquaintances. But Satan has all this backwards. He's gotten us confused in all these things. That's whatever my relationships kind of make me feel the best, or we can kind of have these light and fluffy conversations about Jesus and say a few things, and you know, and and oh, and I walk away feeling good, and that's a good relationship. I'm not saying that it has to be all like you sitting down and grinding at sin. That's not what I'm saying. But I'm saying good gospel friendships and fellowship are ones that are centered around this idea of putting off and putting on. Why? Because if you love someone, you will help them become like Christ. And if you want to be loved rightly, then you will want others to help you become like Christ. You will let people know you, and you will let people speak the truth to you. So that's the context. We're in this putting off and putting on. Now last week, John talked about this idea of pursuing unity through truth. And I wanted to kind of review this a little bit, and it'll, it'll walk us right in to verse 26. So in verse 25, he says this, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another want to quote a number of things that John said, maybe not verbatim, but things that he pointed out from the text for us, that truth is a tool for uniting, not a tool for tearing down. Truth is a tool for uniting, not a tool for tearing down, or tearing apart, rather, tearing apart. He talked about falsehood. What is falsehood? Ultimately, it's a desire to deceive or mislead others, not simply Lying. But what kind of deception are you trying to lead other people to have? I mean, for, in this context, it could be a deception about your pursuit of holiness. Maybe you want people to think that you're holy, or that you're pursuing holiness, but you're not really. That would be deception. That would be falsehood. Listen, if you do not love and treasure Jesus you will live in falsehood. You are living in falsehood. You're living in lies. If you do not love and treasure Jesus, I want to encourage you to look back over the past month and go, what evidence do I even have that I love and treasure Jesus? Look back. Going to church doesn't mean you love and treasure Jesus. Do you seek Him daily and Listen to his word daily and regularly. You meditate upon his goodness and and seek to know him more clearly. That's what you do with someone you love and treasure. You don't have to carve out time for something that you love and treasure. It kind of permeates all of your time. You carve out time for something you dutifully have to make sure you get done. If you do not love and treasure Jesus, you will live. You are living in falsehood. And listen, if you do not know your propensity toward deception, then you do not know yourself very well. We all have this. Myself included. This propensity, this natural proclivity to live and project deception. Deception. So let me encourage you with that. To think upon these things. And then we talk about how, but the opposite of that. Instead of speaking falsehood, we speak the truth with your neighbor. And I, and, I, and I really enjoy what John pointed out here. That to acquire truth, it requires revelation. To acquire truth, it requires revelation. You and I were not born with eyes to see the world correctly. What does Ephesians 2 say? That you were dead. What does a dead person see? Right? He doesn't see anything. You and I were not born with the ability to see clearly. And I, th- and I think this is, <clears throat> Sarah was reading through my sermon. No, she, she's never done that before. She read through them last night. Uh, and when she got to that point, she's like, I think Satan like, has us convinced that we see rightly. And we see rightly all the time. That when we're looking at a situation, a struggle that we have or, or how we're going to spend our money, our time or, or an offense that took place in a relationship that we have or when someone said something or when I said something or whatever the case is. I mean, pick the example that we're actually viewing it rightly. And we, he has us convinced. Thanks to God though, He has built in us, though, this desire to know reality, to know what is true. But sin gets in the way. I don't think we realize how much sin taints reality. Like, your ability to assess a given situation is going to be shaded by sin. You're going to have glasses on that are going to coat it a certain color. I love the example he brought up about Pontius Pilate and Christ. You know, so some of us hear the truth week after week, Sunday after Sunday, and yet walk about just as Pontius Pilate did. And want to remind us of a few last couple things for that: we must speak the Bible if we're going to speak truth to each other. That to know certain that we are speaking truth to each other we must be speaking the truth of the Scriptures. Not the truth of your past experiences. Who knows? Maybe you were assessing your past experiences wrongly. Remember? It could have been shaded by sin. The Scriptures speak the truth of the Scriptures. And then he reminded us that we must see the Bible through the gospel. So we must see the scriptures through the gospel. You, I like what he said, you can't understand God's truth until you know God's greatest truth, Jesus. So we view the scriptures through the lens of the gospel. And I was super encouraged when he mentioned this. As most weeks, your preacher, your pastors are, very in, are working very hard with great intentionality to take you back to the hope of the gospel and away from the devastation of legalism. We're not perfect. But I would encourage you that if you leave feeling defeated, I would encourage you to examine whether or not you have ears to hear the gospel. Rusty and I worked very hard to make sure we're bringing you back to the good news of Jesus Christ, and to the hope of the gospel. Not without imperfection, but I know that that's our heart's desire. We want to speak the truth, and the truth is to you, is that you need the good news of the gospel. So I want to remind us of this last week, because what we need to hear is the truth concerning our anger. We need to hear that. I'm just going to, we're just going to talk about anger all day today. And I want to encourage you because we need to hear the truth. We were not born with the revelation needed to rightly understand our anger. So I want to help us see what the scriptures have to say and reveal and give revelation to our eyes so that we can begin to rightly see and assess anger. And have right view and a right mind and a right heart about anger. So Paul takes up this issue in verse 26. Listen to these words very carefully. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. And give no opportunity to the devil. Anger is a very common source of disunity in the body. I, mean, I think that's why Paul knows this. Paul knows this idea of anger. Of course, underneath the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, certainly. But anger is a very common source of disunity in the body. Here's how our world... Right, let me back up a second. I want to encourage you. When you think about anger, t- we tend to think of anger as a man problem. okay? Which it largely is. I mean, many times it is. Men get angry. But we have to be careful that we don't define anger culturally. That anger is more than just red, hot, boiling faces that are yelling. But anger can look like someone who has closed their mouth off and is sitting in tears. They could be just as angry as someone who's yelling and screaming. So be careful that we don't go, oh, well, good, because I don't really struggle with anger. I guarantee you, all of us in this room struggle with anger. From the littlest to the oldest, male, female, we struggle with anger. It's going to look differently. But here's how our world deals with anger. I think it's kind of two observations. Many just let it rule the day. They just let it rule the day. I'm angry, so I'm going to say and do what I need to do according to my anger. That person made me mad, they cut me off, so I'm going to flip them off, right? I'm going to show them they're number one. Be angry, and I'm just going to live out my anger, right? And that's that's what our culture says to do. Whatever you're feeling, just go live it out, and no one should tell you that you can't do otherwise. Just live it out. The other way the world deals with anger is they suppress it. Just push it down. Just gonna hide it, and usually what happens is that it eventually just builds up and builds up and builds up until the you know the kettle the kettle the kettle lid just you know it just goes off, and all of a sudden now you're steaming. Pardon the pun, mad, but you've been suppressing it. So there's two observations. How many in the church deal with it is not terribly different, but three observations there. Well, just go get it out. It kind of sounds similar, but we kind of shade it in some spiritualism and morality and say, well, just go, just go get it out. Go talk about it. Go to that person and talk about it. It's not a bad idea. But I, but I hope to kind of shade that thought a little bit better for you today. Because there's... To just go from, I'm angry, to let's just go talk about it. I'm going to go talk to that person. To jump from there to there, I think you're missing and making way too big of a leap. Number two, kind of a second observation of how the church tends to deal with it is, or we just wait long enough until we calm down, and then we never address the issue. I'm angry, I'm upset, so I'm going to go back, I might say a couple prayers, and then I'm going to kind of just let it go. And then all of a sudden, I find myself three weeks, four weeks, six months, eight months, ten months, a year down the road, and nothing was ever done. I see that one all the time. Number three. At best, many times, the church, people in the church will repent for being angry, but it never but never looking at what are the deceitful desires that are actually birthing the anger. What is it that's actually going on deep in my heart that's actually boiling up and resulting in anger? I want to encourage you with this. that This is not how those in Christ are to deal with anger. So I want to help build a really a theology of anger for you. I build a theology, a doctrine of anger in the next brief moments for us. Look at the beginning of verse 26. He says, Be angry and do not sin. So here's your first thought. Be angry at the right things. Be angry at the right things. Like I literally, I don't, here's what I'm not saying. Listen, I'm not telling you. You know, if you get around to it, make sure that you're angry at these things. I'm I'm telling you, you have a responsibility to be angry at the right things. Paul's not saying, hey, you know, like, if something happens, there's a way that you can be angry rightfully. No, He's telling us that there are things that we should be angry about. Listen, Jesus displayed anger. Everyone thinks the the temple. Let me give you a different example. You know When He cleanses the temple, let me give you a different example. In Mark 3, 5, when we're talking about they're trying to catch Jesus healing on the Sabbath. And it says in verse 5, and He looked around at them with anger. He looked around at who? The Pharisees with anger. Grieved at their hardness of heart. And said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out. And the man's hand was restored. Jesus looked around at them with anger. I want to make sure you're very careful here. He's, the text does not say he's angry at them. But he looked at them with anger. We're going to come back. Just keep that thought in the back of your mind. God has anger. God has anger. Romans eight For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. What do you think this wrath is? It's God's intense burning anger. What is He angry at? All ungodliness and unrighteousness. So Jesus displayed anger. God has displayed anger. One of the most angry, one of the most greatest displays of anger is when the wrath of God is poured out on His Son, Jesus Christ. Third, we should have anger and indignation with ourselves. Let me read to you 2 Corinthians chapter 7, 10-11. through 11. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point, you have proved yourselves innocent in this matter. But listen to that, for godly grief And there's this indignation and this eagerness, this intense burning towards the sin, the brokenness that's in our lives. Listen, if you really love the Lord, then you must hate evil. You must hate evil. Paul says, be angry. So, what is he saying, be angry at? And that's where you have to ask the question what's it okay to be angry at? And that's why we went to Jesus. What is he angry at? What is God angry at? What are we called to be angry at? Paul is saying, there are times that we should most certainly be angry. There's some, I forget the title of this book, but I was, it was, it was a handful of months ago, and, and I was looking at this book, and basically the book was making this argument that we should never be angry. That we should never be angry. And I'm going, What is he what is he doing with Ephesians 4? So then, I mean there's this perception, guys, out there that if, even in churches that, that we should never be angry. One of the reasons they say we should never be angry is because we can never be purely righteously angered. Paul says, be angry, but you can work through your repentance and faith when it comes to what is motivating my anger, which is what we're going to talk about a little bit about today. What are you saying? Be angry. So all this is driving to this point. We must not be complacent about sin. We must not be complacent about sin. I think, here's the deal, I think many of us are pretty, like, not complacent about sin like we're pretty like hard on the the trail like the nose is on the trail towards the sin of others. And we tend to be pretty complacent about the sin that's inside of us. I mean just so just think about this past week. Consider how many times you thought about your sins against God and how many times you thought about other people's sins And probably many of those are going to be sins against you. Think about that this past week. Look out for it this week. But the main point here is that we must not be complacent about sin. I mean, maybe our complacency is because we've grown numb. I mean, that's not a good thing, but it's a reality. TV helps us grow numb to sin. People we spend time with help us grow numb to sin. Many of us have grown so numb to sin that we even explain away our own sin. If you've been around me enough, I call it self-justification. I mean, other people call it that too. I didn't term it but, or coin that phrase. But Self-justification. Listen, church, I counsel with people all the time through sin. And you want to know what the most common issue I see? The most common issue I see. It's a thread through counseling people through sin, whether that's formal counseling, informal counseling, conversations before and after church. It's this. People are not angry at their sin. They're not indignant toward their sin. There is no burning hatred for the disgusting filth that dishonors God. Most of the time, there's nothing more than a lighthearted recognition of something wrong. A mistake. Something I should get better at. I mean, it breaks, it breaks my heart because I, I see it in my own life. Like I see not the kind of burning anger. Like, you, Listen, if someone wrongs you, like really wrongs you, What kind of burning anger do you have at what they did that was wrong? Like, we all have that. We've all experienced that. Someone did something, and now my anger is burning at them. We're going to talk about that in just a second. So, we all have the capacity to have this burning anger towards sin. Would you like a gauge for your walk with Christ and how mature you are in following him? What's the temperature of your anger towards sin? Especially your own. Stick a thermometer in it. What's it at? This will be shown by how quickly you go at it, how humble you are concerning it, how quickly you're willing to call it what it is, how much it Breaks your heart. Listen, I, I, I'm i preaching to myself. He says, so be angry. Be angry. Sin is something that should always provoke anger. But he says this. But do not be angry in a sinful manner. Do not be angry in a sinful manner. All right, so we have to be careful. We have to be careful, because the line we're talking about walking here, this is why a lot of people say, well, just well just don't be angry at all. Because they're not willing to articulate and try to walk the fine line of what is good anger and what is bad anger because it is a very tight rope. You walk in one direction or the other and you will likely be sinning. Again, I I want to shape our definition. We can't think of anger as just simply raging desire, like this raging, burning anger. That's One of the most freeing things that, that I ever had was thinking about Anger and, and, and understanding that like, frustration is simply a form, a fruit, a, a related aspect of anger. Here's what we tend to say, well, well, I'm just, I'm offended. I'm offended. So-and-so said this, or so-and-so did this, or the government did this, I'm just offended. So here's my question, because, I mean, that's a very common phrase I hear, or something like that. I'm offended. And here's your question. Let me ask you this. Is that offense controlling you? Is that controlling you? Because if it is, then now we're getting down this road of what is wrong anger. Is it controlling you? Are you able to think about something else? Are you able to to, to move on? Are you able to uh, or or is it what's are you is it what's consuming your thoughts? Has it robbed you of your joy? Guys, if anger is not free from injured pride, malice, or a spirit of revenge, then it has most certainly degenerated into sin. So if you look at your anger, and what's accompanying that is any kind of hurt pride, or you want to say something to make this right and get even, you have degenerated into sin. So let's look at some kind of three different ways that our anger is sinful. And three different ways our anger is sinful. First of all, we must never be irritable people. Anger that is manifesting itself in irritability is sin. Irritability is something sinful and condemned everywhere in Scripture we're called to be irritable people we're called to be joyful loving patient people if you're a born again christian then the old man is gone he's the one that gets irritable second we must not be easily provoked that's a good one we must not be easily provoked 1 Corinthians, you can go read it later, love is not easily provoked. If you are easily provoked, then you are bound to fall into sin very easily. Now again, some of us are thinking, easily provoked to become raging mad. No, I'm saying, e- like easily provoked to anger. Whatever expression that looks like. Whether that's yelling, and because you're mad and your face is red, or, because, or sitting in the corner with your mouth shut, and tears flowing from your eyes. Not brokenness tears, but tears of anger. Are you easily provoked? James three seventeen says this. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. So think about provoked. Here's the test question. Are you easily put out by anything? Are you easily put off by something? Or maybe it's a particular person in your life that if they, just, if they say something just not quite the right way, all of a sudden, whoo, you're provoked. Maybe there's that person that just kind of gets at you. It could be someone that's really close to you. Even someone that you love dearly. Are you easily put out by anything? Maybe, let me give you some examples. Maybe when someone doesn't show appreciation, does that put you out? Maybe when someone says something hurtful, what, like what puts you out? I mean, I'm not saying that the, saying something hurtful is okay. What we're talking about is what's going on as a response by your heart. Are you easily put out when the preacher tells you the Bible demands something of you? You know, when your toes get squashed a little bit. When the driver cuts you off, are you easily provoked? I mean, think about this. This is one I struggle with. Now Now I've got four kids in the back, and they're watching Daddy. I mean, de- so deception's wicked, right? Someone cuts Daddy off. Daddy's burning with anger and lays on his horn. Okay? Kids see this, right? Now, now, what do I do? What I should do is I should say to my kids, guys, because they'll ask, why'd you honk your horn, Dad? Why'd you honk your horn, Dad? My heart, because it wants to maintain this facade of holiness, even to my kids, I say, I'm alerting him to the fact that he drove in a way that was not caring for the drivers around him, and certainly our family, right? Now, Now, genuine, like sincerely, that was part of my motivation, but that wasn't all of my motivation. I was angry. I was angry at him. I wasn't, and, 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 and again, we're going to define this because, there's, again, there's a right thing that I should be angry at. And I'm not saying it's wrong to honk your horn, okay? Particularly in the Dominican Republic, horns are of great value. Because you got motorcycles zooming all around, and no one pays attention to lines. And you just kind of go where, I mean, I mean you kind of stay on your side of the road, but not really, uh, you know, and yeah, anyways, like horns are good and, and horns are good in our culture too. But we're talking about what is it that is provoking me to anger? What is the thing that disturbs your joy and begins to control your mind or prevents you from concentrating on something else? We should not be easily provoked, but gentle, peaceable, open to Reason. He says to not be angry in a sinful manner. The third example of a sinful uh, fruit or a sinful display of anger is any anger or expression of anger that is excessive, violent, uncontrollable, or out of control. All these are wrong. We should not be controlled by our anger. Ever. We are to be controlled by the Spirit of God. Always. Again, make sure you're being careful that you don't think of uncontrolled anger like as this spouting off of your mouth and a red hot face. Maybe it's you quiet in the corner in tears. And anything in between. So people who who want to do violent actions, utterly sinful. A lack of control. So then the question is, how, so so now we've kind of walked through, what should we be angry at? What are wrong, like how does anger become wrong? Like where do we see it as a wrong expression? Now ask the question, how do we, how do we like deal with this anger? How should we deal with this anger? We're going to have like really kind of three points to how we deal with this anger. But it's also going to kind of fill in how do we think about anger as well. <clears throat> I'm going to skip the end of 26 and address verse 27 first and then come back to the end of 26. Verse 27 says this, And give no opportunity to the devil and give no opportunity to the devil. So we're first going to talk about what does it look like to give opportunity to the devil. And then I think what he says just before that, the end of 26, is going to be how we go about not giving opportunity to the devil. So I want to talk about giving opportunity to the devil first, and then talk about how do we not give opportunity to the devil. So this, do not give opportunity to the devil, if you haven't figured out the third point there yet. Do not give opportunity to the devil. Verse 27, and give no opportunity to the devil. All right? Let's talk about this. When you lose control, meaning when anger has begun to control you, this action belongs to the old man and has been put off by God. When you become angry, frustrated, or as I said, offended, you open the door for the devil in a very practical way. This is not some crazy, super spiritual, weird thing. It's very practically, you open the door for Satan. Once you are controlled by your temper, again, whatever that looks like, you are no longer able to reason, you are no longer able to think, and you can no longer give a balanced judgment. Think about that. Think about that. When you are controlled by your anger, you will be altogether biased on one side and against the other side. Your objectivity goes out the window when you're controlled by this sinful anger. Listen, your ability to think and reason is gone. What are these things? what are this we're talking about this thinking and reasoning and, and able to genuinely see the situation and think about it and and process it. What are we talking about there? What is that? At the very least, that is one of the things that makes us in the image of God. The ability to think and reason. And so when we become controlled by anger, that goes out the window. And what do we become essentially at that point? Like animals living out our instincts. We set aside this it, but instead of being able to reason and think. It's gone. Think back to the garden with me. When Adam and Eve grew angry at God for withholding something from them, the door for Satan was open wide. Right? I mean, Satan's involved in that, right? He's, he's helping them think about that, but what happens is as they begin to grow in enmity and, and kind of going, well, yeah, God is withholding something from us. He is withholding something good from me. He is, and I, I should have this. And what happens is Satan just works his magic in the midst of them. What grew within Adam and Eve was nothing more than bitterness and enmity with God. Many of the times that we fall into sin, it's linked to bitterness and enmity with God. Many of the times that we fall into sin, we think that God is withholding something good from us. And so we choose to disobey. No, this thing that God has clearly said no to, that's something good for me. And God is mean for keeping it from me. and we open the door wide. I mean think about that. Think about the times that you've sinned or times that you've nursed sin along, right? You've nursed it along. You've helped foster the sin in your heart. What's going on? Like think about just the craziness of what's going on in your mind at that point. The sick, weird reasoning that's that's happening. You're convincing yourself that what God has said is not good that you know what's best. Like, that's crazy. I mean, I've done it a thousand times, times a thousand. But think about that. Adam and Eve going, God does not know what's best, we do. And how anger plays this role in this. Once this sets in, Satan has a controlling interest in your heart. Here's what I want to point out to you. Understand that any. Any unrighteous anger, frustration, indignation, and whatever that looks like. Any. And when that happens, a door for the devil has been opened. Any. So tomorrow, when you get angry for unrighteous reasons, the door's been cracked open. Understand that most of the time, we are not angry for righteous reasons. Even when someone else has legitimately sinned against us. Like most of the time, we are going to be angry for unrighteous reasons. If you are angry, here, here you go, at the person, you have unrighteous anger. And you have opened the door for Satan. You just said, here you go. Walk in. Walk in. I I don't know about you, but that sounds scary to me. To think that every time that, that I have indulged in sinful, unrighteous anger, that I gave a free path to Satan. To walk right in. Our anger must never be personal, but rather against the principle of sin. Remember, what was Jesus angry at? He was angry at this hardened sinfulness, this hardened hearts. He wasn't angry at the Pharisees. He was angry at their sinfulness, at the rebelliousness in them. What's God angry at? When His wrath is outpoured, what does He poured out on? Man's sinfulness. But rather, again, not should be mad at the person. Our anger should be burning towards the sin, whether it's our sin or the other person's sin. And you, well, I'm, I'm going to get ahead of myself. I want you to think about this. Think about the damage that sinful anger does. Think about the damage that sinful anger does, the deep wounds that it cuts. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. Some of you still have wounds in your heart that have been caused by the deep, deep effect of sinful anger. It could be with a spouse. It could be with a friend. It could be in a church. The kind of permanent damage it does to relationships. I mean, think about that in a church context. Think about that in a church context. I mean, that's uh, what the passage is about. Guys, the stupid words that are spoken out of anger, why do you think those stupid words come out? Because your ability to reason, your ability to think is gone. Your wisdom's out the door. You're controlled by your anger and given room and opportunity to the devil. What about the terrible words said with the tongue and the terrible expressions made with the face? The kind of damage that sinful anger does. Guys, anger is always a cause of confusion too. I've never sat in a counseling situation with someone who's angry and been like, wow, they have a good ability to reason. And a good, they're, like their confusion is just, like they've got it. Like, they're not confused at all. No, it's nothing but confusion. And so in those situations, like, which is really hard, but you have to try and, first of all, help them deal with their, Sin of anger, and then at the same time try and help bring about clarity and removing confusion. But anger never leads us to clarity. It leads us to confusion. Again, sinful anger. It causes confusion, listen, both in the life of the one who is angry and likely to cause confusion in the people around the person who is angry. So, how do we not give opportunity to the devil and so deal with our anger? He says very practically, deal with your own sinful anger before the sun sets. Before the sun sets. Before the sun sets. sets, He gives a time frame. Now, I think there's a sense in which we can actually take this literal. And we need to take this literal. Okay? And I'm going to walk us through that. Guys, the second word for anger here, and I know if some of you have a Holman Christian standard, what's the second word for anger there? I didn't take the time to look. But I know I'll, someone will, na-na-na-na-na, the Holman says this. Does anyone have a Holman? Anybody? wow, look at that. Well, and then we don't know. All right, scratch that. Anyone want to look it up real quick? Okay. All right, we're not, don't, don't worry about it. We'll just keep going. The ESV translates, be angry, do not sin, do not let the sun go down on your anger. The words for anger, they're actually two different words. The ESV translates it both, anger it is. They are very, very similar, but there's the second word for anger is different. the The word carries with it kind of the um, connotations of ongoing anger, kind of like a settled bitterness that's continuing on. So I think there is a a principle here of of where we can say that you know, so long as sin is not becoming this, or I'm sorry, sin anger is not becoming this in embedded settled bitterness. Then, like, we can work on it tomorrow. But but I, I want to encourage us to move away from that thought for the most part. I want us to move away from that for the most part. Most of us think this way I have been angered by someone else, and so I must go to them and resolve this issue before the sun sets, right? So that's kind of the general thought that we have going on with this passage. But I, I want to encourage us to think a little bit differently about this. He is talking about the sun setting. Not on the resolution with that person. He's talking about the sunsetting on the embedded bitterness and anger in your heart. Do you hear me? He's not talking about just go make sure you have a conversation and find resolution with this other person before the sun sets. I mean, that's how we typically apply this passage. That's not his main point. His main point is that you have anger. In you and deal with that before the sun sets. Notice, notice this. Satan in this passage is never credited with the anger. Do you notice that? Who's credited with the anger in this passage? Who is he talking about being angry and causing the anger? Not Satan. Not the other person. He's talking about me. You and I are credited with the anger. And here's the marvelous thing. Is that you really can go to bed having dealt with your anger. And you can every time. And I want to encourage you to do it every time. I want to encourage you to take this passage literally. Literally. And when he says, don't go to bed, do not let the sun set on your anger to do it, to deal with it in your heart. Now, yes, that might mean that the next day or two weeks later, you go have a conversation with someone. But this falls right in line, listen to me, with with Jesus in Matthew 7, right? Right? Uh, is that where, it, that's Matthew 6, Matthew 7. Deal with the log in your own eye before you go to your brother or sister, right? It's, it's in that same vein of thought. We deal with the sin in our own hearts before we go to our brother or sister. Here particularly, we deal with the sin of anger. Then we can go do that. But what he's telling us here is don't let the sun set on your anger. Guys, you can clear it up before you go to bed. How many of us go to bed angry? Some of us go to bed angry every night. we're controlled by it. Some of us go to bed because we've lived with anger so long, we go to bed, not even realizing that we're angry, because we've been suppressing it. And again, what does the world tell us, or what does we typically do in a church? Well I just need to get that anger out and go talk to the person? That's so with the text, is telling you to deal with it yourself. Not by yourself, but deal with yourself before God. We hold on to this anger many times because we're not believing something, again, that's true of God. We, don't, we go to bed with this anger maybe because we don't trust that God's in control. That the thing that caused my anger... We're not trusting that that was a part of God's plan or it was meant for my good. There's going to be lots of other desires and such and wrong belief that foster and birth the sin. But I want you to see that he is telling us, do not let the sun go down on your anger. Again, having dealt with your sin of anger, then you can go reconcile with the brother or sister. Because they didn't make you angry even though they might have done something wrong. The question is, what are you angry at? Are you angry at the sin? I mean, most of the time we're not. And certainly not exclusively angry at their sin. We're angry at them. But what does the Bible tell us? Patience, joy, be peaceable, merciful, Gracious, and I'm gonna I'm gonna blow this idea out of the water in just a second of our being angry at the person versus being angry at the sin. Okay? So just hang with me for a second. Guys, when it comes to these relationships, we talk about unity and dealing with sin before the sun goes down. You understand this practically that when you let when you go to bed, you wake up the next morning, is what happens? Even if you have forgotten about it, even if you wake up the next day and you feel better about it, you're not as emotionally wrapped up and maybe some of your reasoning has come back. What's happened though? There was a seed of bitterness that was just deposited into your heart. It's dangerous. It is utterly dangerous to go to bed with sinful anger on your heart. Because what have you just done? you just woke up the next morning and then a door was open. And imagine you do that 3 or 4 more times over the next few weeks and how big that door gets open. And by this time Satan's walking around and he's kind of tying up this and tying this and eventually he's going to help you connect these thoughts and even your own evil desires are going to start building a case and all of a sudden now you've got this this big, you know, points 1 2 three, you got this big outline of of why you're offended at this person. And his anger and this rooted bitterness just built up. And when, listen, if you would have followed God's word and his grace and sat down before you put your head on the pillow and confessed that before God and worked that out with God. And we'll talk about that more in a second. That door for Satan would have been shut. Guys, Satan will exploit the strained relationships that develop because of sinful anger. He will do it, and he will do it every time. He will use it for his advantage in his kingdom every time. But here's the heart of the situation. How is it that I deal with the root of anger in my heart. I mean, and, and listen, There, are, I'd encourage you in, in your DNA groups, talk through this, work through this, and flesh all this out in house gathering this week, flesh this stuff out. I'm just going to give you some very foundational principles for this. Guys, sinful anger is a denial of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I tried to figure out a positive way to say this, and I just couldn't. Sinful anger is a denial of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Anger, listen, anger always leads, like an unrepented, uh, dealt with anger, will lead us to vengeance. It will lead us to getting revenge. It will lead us to making the situation right by our own power and authority. What can I say to get at this person? Or what can I ignore to deal with this person? What can I withhold in order to get back at this person or this thing? Or Right? But listen, if you don't hear anything else I say this morning, hear these next few words. This is the exact opposite of what happens in the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is the exact opposite of what happens. So here we are, listen, here we are. We are people God's people doing rebellious things. Enemies of God. Right? I'm thinking Ephesians 2, the first few verses. Sons of disobedience following the course of the power of the air. What have we done? We've lived in a way. We we all either lived or are currently living in a way that brings nothing but displeasure and dishonor to God. That was us. First part of Ephesians. What do we do? Offend God. Even with our good actions. Offending God. What happens in God? This burning hot anger toward our sin. Now if there was anyone who ever had an excuse to be offended at the person, it's certainly God, right? Right? He's burning hot anger towards our sinfulness. And what does he do? What does God do? What did we deserve? What did he do? In spite of our rebellion, God sent his son Jesus to die on the cross in our place. What's He do? He turns His wrath, when you and I deserved it, He turns His wrath from us and gives it to His Son who gladly, willingly, humbly takes upon Himself our sins, our offenses. Guys, our salvation is very fundamentally the exact opposite of anger leading us to vengeance. It's the opposite. God could have exacted vengeance on us. But what's He do? He puts it on His Son, Jesus. I mean, listen. If that's what God does to us, how in the world do we even think that it's okay or that it honors God for us to let anger burn in us at other people and to want to make it right, to get even. God didn't do that to you. He didn't do that to me. So listen, when we want to burn in sinful anger, We are denying the very gospel that has set your soul free. God's righteous anger toward our sin was turned towards His own Son in order that He might show us love and at the same time be just. I want to give you a One last practical example, and then I want to read a quote and we'll be done. You know, today's Mother's Day. Today's Mother's Day. Today's the day we celebrate and give honor to mothers. I want to to account something for you. And I want you to know that what I'm about to say speaks to whether you have children. Whether you want children, hoping to someday, whether you're fostering children, whatever the case is, this is something very true that God has done. In the very beginning, before the fall, Eve, right, the mother of mankind, is given the innate ability to love and to nurture. She's given this ability to to care, to, to foster life, right? I mean, you get that, right? That's a big deal. Even after the fall takes place, God affirms this call of life giver and nurturer in Eve as he says it is through her children one day will come Jesus Christ, the snake crusher. God gives something to women something that's given by God where she can, through the rebellion of a child, persevere in her loving nurture of that child. Think about this, right? This is happening pre-fall, post-fall. God knows what's going on. He affirms her her nurturing, life-giving ability. There is this ability to, in the face of rejection, Not perfectly, but in the face of rejection, when the rest of the world runs to vengeance, she can weep in brokenness with a heart full of love. Whether you're a mother of ten, a hopeful biological mother, a mother with deceased children, or one whose mom has passed, whatever the case is, God has given you in creation albeit as imperfect as it is, this ability to look at rejection, rebellion, sinfulness, in the face and still give that child your life. Whether it's your biological child or not. I mean, think about that. What's going on there? The rest of the world runs oftentimes to anger. And sometimes we do too. But as I watch my own wife, as I watch the moms that are around me, as I watch the ladies that are around me, I, I watch them and I am blessed by this God given picture of their ability to so often, not without exception, but so often, to respond to sinfulness. Not with anger. Not with sinful anger. But with gentleness, firmness, love, grace, mercy. Because it is a reminder to all of us the mercy shown to us in the Gospel. Where in our sinfulness, God deals with our sin through His Son and mercifully, graciously, and lovingly nurtures our life, right? So as you think about that, ladies, whether you have kids or not, or hope to someday, this given by God, you can exemplify and so encourage all of our hearts today, and tomorrow, and next week, and give us this visible picture, really of the gospel Where God, in his great mercy, looks upon our sinfulness, deals with the sinfulness, and yet loves us through the whole thing. I want to end with this quote today. From Dr. Jones. It's a fairly lengthy quote, but I want you to follow along with me. I'll try to read it with with, uh, emphasis here. He says this: Hate sin always. Hate sin in the sinner always. But never hate the sinner. Both sides of the truth are absolutely essential. Sin must never be condoned, sin must never be excused, sin must always be condemned. There are people who are sinners who do not not like that. Ah, they say, but where is your principle of grace and of love and of mercy and of compassion? The sinner should never speak in that way, he says. He should feel that he deserves all he is getting and infinitely more. He should never defend himself. He should feel indignation against himself. He should be angry with himself. He should hate himself. Sin is to rouse a holy anger in us every time it occurs and in every form. But the sinner is to be forgiven. The sinner is to be loved. The sinner is to be helped to forsake his sin and to rise up. This blessed balance of the Scripture. Hatred of sin, but never hatred of the sinner. Anger, but never in a sinful way. He says, and above all, I repeat, always make sure that you never put your head down on your pillow to rest and sleep for the night with any spirit of bitterness or hatred or lack of forgiveness in your heart or mind or soul. And he quotes, let not the sun go down upon your wrath. You may have a great struggle with yourself, but do not go to rest until you have settled it. You may have to argue it backwards and forwards. Go on, I say, until you have realized the love of God in Christ to you, until you have seen Christ bleeding and dying on the cross, that you might be forgiven. Dwell on it until He has melted your heart and broken you down and made you sorry for the one who has offended you and until you forgive freely. Then, but not until then, Get into your bed and put your head down on the pillow and sleep the sleep of the just and the righteous and the holy because you have a right to do so. You will be doing it as the Son of God Himself did it. You will have acted in your life and domain as God Himself has acted with respect to you. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we forget. We forget how you acted in respect to us. We do, all the time. We wake up in the morning having forgotten it. We drive down the road having forgotten it. We interact with brothers and sisters that have been washed in the blood having forgotten it. Father, if you have forgiven us such great a debt and have so carefully administered Your wrath, not to us, but to Your Son, Jesus. Out of Your great love for Your people and the display of Your glory, how much more ought we to be people who both burn with hot anger towards our sin, and sin in general, and are overwhelmed with love and mercy for those who sin, including ourselves. Father, why? Why would we ever hate ourselves instead of just hating our sin when You despised our sin and loved us? Father, I pray that you would help us be a people who hate sin, who are angered at sin, but a people who love the sinner, who are broken for the sinner, including ourselves. Father May we never let the sun set on our anger and so give satan control may we never do this and Father may we live moment by moment not just simply remembering but treasuring Your love for us as sinners and your sacrifice for us when we deserved vengeance. May we treasure that each and every moment that we breathe. Father, for it's in your Son's name we pray. Amen.